And thank you, families, for bringing your children and your grandchildren to the Lord and to us uh, today. We're glad you're here today. Before I get real serious, we've already been serious, I'll lighten it up a little. Uh, If you're watching this online and you're not watching it live, you may be watching it in January or February. Well, we're in July, and it is hot, isn't it? It's like every summer I go, does it really get this hot? I think I forget or I'm getting older or something, but it is hot. But it reminded me of something very important, which is air conditioning. You may have come to Florida because of the sun or a job, but you're staying in Florida because of air conditioning. You know that, don't you? You would quit the job, you would get rid of the beach if there were no air conditioning. You know, every state has two statues in Statuary Hall in, in the Capitol building, and I've talked about one of them that was just changed for Florida, Mary Bethune Cookman, who was just added to ours, the first African-American woman who's in those hundred statues representing Florida. Her statue was just added this past year, and we're very excited about that. She is, was an alum of the same place I went to school, Moody Bible Institute, a fine Christian woman who came to Florida, opened up a girl's school in Daytona back at the turn of the other century in the 19, early 1900s, and was rated the second most influential woman in the United States in the mid-1900s behind Eleanor Roosevelt. That was Mary Bethune Cookman. We never talk about the other statue. The other statue is a man named Dr. John Gorey, our other Florida statue. He was born in the early 1800s, and he's from the, the islands, from St. Kitts. He was an islander. So those of you who are from the Caribbean, our second statue is a Caribbean man who moved to the United States, became a doctor, moved to Florida because he wanted to help those with malaria and yellow fever. Because before air conditioning, Florida was nothing but a place to get diseases. We had the swamps and the mangroves and all those things we like to protect now. But the issue was, and the bugs and the mosquitoes and all the way those things happen, come out at night. And he invented air conditioning. In the 1850s, mechanical air conditioning, it wasn't as refrigerated as it is today, where you can get it down into the 60s, but he was the one who did it. So you are here today because of John Gorey. The interesting thing about John Gorey, he was a fine Christian man as well. Our two statues in the Capitol for the state of Florida were two fine Christian people, one in the mid-1800s, one in the early 1900s, and I'm very pleased about that because I live in Florida because of air conditioning. Even though I'm fifth generation or sixth generation South Floridian, I wouldn't be here right now. I'd be in North Carolina and be back in January, but we are glad you're here and we're here because of air conditioning. I say all that to say is because this fall we're gonna be coming to you because the air conditioning system in this building is on its last literally thread. It's been here, I don't know, 35 years or something, this air conditioning system, so we're gonna have to get it fixed. But it takes so long to get the materials, you know, like 40 weeks I think now because of all the problems with getting materials and things like that. So, but we're gonna come to you later. Every Sunday morning I walk in, and this is what I'm looking for for our head of maintenance. I'm looking for this or this. 
That's all I want to know. Everything else I'm okay with, but that air conditioning and today it was this, so we're good. So anyway, we're praying that it makes it through the summer and all the rest. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're in Ephesians. We've titled the subject Known, K-N-O-W-N, Known, which really is a play on multiple words, but it's a play on the word know, K-N-O-W, to know God, to know his word, to know Jesus Christ, and then it's known with the N so that we can be known. We can be known by God. We can be known by our brothers and sisters here in the community of faith, and we can be known outside the community of faith that we are followers of Jesus Christ. So when you look at that, you go, no, known. It's all of the above, and it's very important to see. A couple things I want to talk about before I get into uh, chapter 4, and we're going to be starting in verse 11 of chapter 4, is this. There's a couple of things that no one argues about. No one argues that Jesus existed. No one argues that the Bible is there. No one argues that you have a personal faith. No one argues this. No one argues that there's the Bible, that Christ lived, and that you have a personal faith. What people argue about, is the Bible true? Is Jesus living? Does your faith make a difference? Is there really a difference? This is what people argue about. So, People who say, oh, Jesus didn't live, everybody, the non-believer, the archaeologist who's pagan, they all know Jesus Christ lived. But is it the Jesus Christ of the Bible? And that's a different thing. And that's important because there's two questions that come about that need to be answered, and they, they come with Christmas and with Easter. Christmas and Easter. Christmas has a lot of things around it, but the most important thing about Christmas is this question. Was Jesus born of a virgin? Is he born of a virgin? You know, that he was born in Nazareth, or I mean, in Bethlehem versus Nazareth. Was he born at night or in the daytime? How many shepherds were there? When did the wise men come? These are all details that can be worked out. But was he born of a virgin? Because if he was born of a virgin, he's God. He's God, born sinless. And then the second area is about Easter. Easter has a lot of things around it. We've got bunnies and chocolates and flowers and all those cute things and white dresses and fun things. But there's only one thing that really matters about Easter. Did he rise from the dead? And here's the thing. If Jesus was born of a virgin and he resurrected from the dead, then what we say makes sense. If Jesus was not born of a virgin and did not rise from the dead, what we say is good and okay, but just one of many things. So the question is, do you believe that Jesus Christ is God, and do you believe that he rose from the dead? That's what's important in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, Paul is there to tell us that the true and living God became a human and he resurrected for our sins. 
And then there's all these things that we need to play out, and that's where we are at this point in time in chapter four. The other thing is, is how do we picture God? And I've talked about this many times. There's four pictures, four main pictures of God and Christ in the Bible. There's actually probably 10 or 12 pictures. One is a picture of a family. We talk about God as our father. We even talk about Christ as father. There's this sense of adoption. There's this fatherhood of God. There's the family situation. And that's one thing. Another one is the courtroom. We think of God as our judge, Christ is our mediator or our lawyer. Uh, there's some right, there's some wrong, there's some laws, there's some laws that have been broken, there's some laws that have been pardoned. Big court scene, right? This is how the book of Romans is established. But there's two other ways to look at how we picture God. One is via a battle. This is what we were singing about this morning, the battle. I'm gonna come back to that in just a moment. And then the fourth common way is community. This is the church. God has brought us together in a community. Christ is the head, we are the body, etc. There's the groom and the bridegroom and all the rest, um, the bride and the bridegroom rather, and coming together. And there's that picture of marriage and of community and all the rest. But in the battle, we sang about a battle. Last week we began to talk about this, and you need to really think about this as we go into these scriptures. Think about this. Years ago, when they're back in the ancient world, most kings were kings of cities, not empires. Now there was the Neros and the Pharaohs, but most kings were kings of cities. So this city and its king would go fight this city and its king, and whoever won took the spoils or all the good things out of the one city and brought them back to the other city. You see this throughout history. You even see it for those of us who come out of the European background. You see that up until about 200 years ago, this is the way it was. This king went after that king. Then eventually they all kind of solidified and became empires and said, we're all gonna go all against you and not just against these cities. But in the city-state, you know, the king of Sparta against the king of Athens, back and forth. And what would they bring? They would bring all the goods from this city back to this city. The king would take his portion, the army would take their portion, and then they would lay the rest of the goods out into the town square or in front of the wall or wherever so that everybody could benefit from the spoils of the vanquished city. Do you see the picture? So if this city won, they got all the spoils of this city. Everybody benefited, all the families benefited, all the army's family benefited, of course the king benefited a lot, and this would happen. Well, how does this relate to us if there's a battle here? Well, we need to understand, the Bible talks about this, and we're gonna see it in chapter six more, that there is a battle. In fact, there's armor of God that we even talk about, right? There is a battle going on. What is the battle for, and who gets the spoils? The battle is for people, not cities, although cities are people, but not in the sense of the old-fashioned way. It's for people. And what are the spoils of that? The spoils are as those people get brought back to something. So what is it? Christ wins the battle against Satan for your soul. 
Do you realize every person in this room who's a follower of Jesus Christ is part of the spoils of Christ? That we were out there, he won the battle for us, and he brought us back somewhere. He brought us back to what he established, which was the church. He brought us to the church. Every person in this room is spoils of being against God, etc., to some extent or another, whether you were this tall or older, and Christ won the battle, you believed in him, and he brought you into spoils into the church. And I'm saying the big church, the big C church, but also to us. Each of us are, because, are here because of what Christ did in our life unless you just got dragged here by your wife or husband. Then you're just here and you're a visitor and we welcome visitors. But if you're here because you are a follower of Jesus Christ, it's because he captured you and he set you free into the new kingdom. And the representation of the new kingdom on earth is the church. The kingdom of God is much bigger than the church in terms of a lot of things, but those of us who are followers of Christ have been brought from the old kingdom to the new kingdom. Do you see the picture? Now, what happens when you are in the new kingdom? You see, you are the gift. When the king brings the spoils, and he brings candelabras and pottery and and fabrics and cows and sheep and food and all those things, those are the spoils that come into the victor. The spoils, that they're gifts that the king gives to the whole city. The gifts that God gives to us at the church are people. These are the gifts that God gives. We're all so worried about, I, mean, oh, I need you to raise money, so we gotta get a new air conditioner. Okay, that's a gift. But the real gift is you. The real gift is not your money, the gift is you. And that's the beautiful thing that's gonna come out of this passage. So let's read it. It starts in verse 11 and goes to verse 16. It's one sentence in the original. So I'm gonna read it as one sentence and then we're gonna look at it. Verse 11 of chapter four of Ephesians. And he, Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the statue, stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to it and fro by the waves, or carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes, rather, that's a new sentence in my Bible, but it's the same sentence in the original. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That is a mouthful, isn't it? Let me try to dissect it down a little. First of all, 
Christ gave, and it says here, four things. He gave more than these four things, but these are the four that Paul is speaking about. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds and teachers. That's one. It's an, an and there, shepherd teachers. Well, there's two ways you can look at the first two. Apostles are, originally there were the 12 apostles and then Paul, so 13 apostles and then prophets. So is he talking about the 12 apostles and the prophets like Daniel, Ezekiel, John the Baptist, or could he also be talking about the definition of apostle, which means sent out one? We have people that are sent out, you know, we're sent out from the church to other places so that we can share the gospel, so that we can see them come to Christ and come into the church, whether it's this particular church or just the church of Jesus Christ. And then the prophets, those are people that if they told the future, were future tellers, Daniel was able to tell the future, Jeremiah was able to tell the future, John the Baptist was able to tell the future. I'm not a big person into thinking that there are people alive that can tell the future. There are people who say they can tell the future. I don't think so. I just have to be honest. I don't think people can tell the future. Now, there's obvious things I can say, hey, the sun's going to rise tomorrow. So I am telling the future. I'm not talking about telling that kind of future. I'm talking about people who say, you know, in a month this is gonna happen to you, in six months this is gonna happen to you. We can talk about your future, but to didactically say that I can tell your future, and I'm really good with the future. I can see the future. I can see out ahead, but I can't tell the future. But can we tell the truth about the future? That's what I think the prophets of today are so important. It's not that they could tell the future. I mean, it's ridiculous to try to figure out this. God knows the future. I know God. I trust him. I'll let the future let him handle it. But we can tell things about the future, what we need to do about the future. That's what a prophet does. An evangelist, that we misunderstand this word evangelist. We think of Billy Graham and, you know, all these great people that can tell Christ, speak about Christ, and hundreds come to the Lord and all. That's not what it means. Of course, those are evangelists. It's really just someone who shares the gospel. You're sharing the gospel, the evangel, the, the good story of what it is. Every one of us should be an evangelist. Every one of you, every one of me should be an evangelist. We are here to share the gospel. And then there are special teachers and shepherds. He doesn't use the word pastor here, and everybody's argued, did he mean pastor? Did he mean the office of shepherd, the office of teacher, or just people teaching? It's hard to say, but there are positions of teaching, pastoring and shepherding, and there were other words like bishop and elder in the Bible, things like that. And that's all good, but he, there are people in the church that God has given who are to do something. And that's verse 12, and let's look at verse 12. In verse 12 it says, we who are apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers are to do something. We are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And this is so important, and this is what's been lost for 2,000 years in the church. For 2,000 years, we have had this separation between you and me, between us and them. There are those who do the work of the ministry, and there are those who pay for the work of the ministry. 
That is not biblical. All of us do the work of the ministry. Some of us equip people to do the work of the ministry, and some just do the work of the ministry. But I believe all of us do the work of the ministry. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, it is your responsibility to do that work. Why? I have a belief, this is not in the Bible, but I really, after studying the Bible, I believe God brings into local congregations the people he wants to do the work of that local church. In other words, you might go, why don't we have um, a ministry to scuba divers? I don't know. I don't scuba dive. Maybe you do, and maybe we should. But why don't we have a ministry to, oh, they have a great ministry down the street to such and such. I go, yes, they have the people. God has given them the people to do that ministry. I think God has given us a cool group of people that can do a great work of ministry here in Boca Raton, South Florida, and around the world. You guys are doing it. We just need more of you doing it. There's maybe half of us doing it. Can you imagine if all of us were doing it? If you said, let me use my gift. And I'm saying, you use your gift. So people go, let me use it. No, just use it. And there's ways you can use it personally, and there's ways you can use it corporately. So we have a lot of ministries. We're set up in groups. You can do it. We have outreach groups. We have equipping groups. We have Bible study groups. We have in-reach groups. You figure out what you want to do. Go in the back, and they'll help you. And if we don't have what you need to do, we'll either start it or find a church for you to do it in. We have people come to us many times and go, we're coming to you because our gifts match what your church does. Not everybody says because they like the music or they like the preaching. That's quite secondary. What's primary is what has God called you to do and is this the right place to do it? And if it is, do it. And I look around as I look at you, I could see most of you physically. I can't see the live stream and I can't see you in the balcony to see your colors, all the red and green, but... I know you're doing the work of the ministry. And go do it because we're here to equip. Why? For the work of the ministry. And the second part, it says here, and it's right up on the screen, for the building up of the body of Christ. You see, here's what we're to do. It's called discipling. If I build you up, you build someone else up, they build someone else up, we're building the church. Not the physical church. What we're building is the body of Christ. You are responsible for building the body of Christ. Now, only Christ can save people. Only Christ does the ultimate rescuing of people spiritually. But once they are rescued spiritually, we are responsible to help people, both in and out of our local church, both in the body of Christ and out of the body of Christ. And verse 13 says, until we attain certain things. And here's what he wants us to do. This is Paul talking, Christ talking through Paul. Until we attain the unity of the faith. Now, we were talking about unity a couple of weeks ago, last week as well. This is where a lot of churches go, right? Just, we crash and burn at the unity thing. This is the first one. He wants us to have unity because and another scripture says they'll know we are Christians by our love. And the Gandhi 
quote I gave last week, which is so true. Why is Christianity not working in India? And Gandhi said, this was 75 years ago, Gandhi said, because of the Christians. I'd hate somebody to say, why is Christianity not working in Boca? Because of the Christians. I'd hate somebody to say that. I want them to know us because we have unity. Doesn't mean we agree with everything. That's why here in South Florida, we have a thing called Church United, where we have the churches, we have hundreds of churches that are bound together. We disagree with each other on a lot of things. Can I tell you? It's amazing. I'm sitting down with some Pentecostal brothers and sisters. I'm thinking, I don't quite agree with everything they do. And I'm sitting down with some other ones. I'm going, I don't agree. But you know what? They're brothers and sisters. I'm going to be sitting in heaven with them. I'm going to be sitting in the new earth with them. I might as well be sitting in South Florida with them and doing something together. Though I may not attend their church. I may not want to attend some of the things they do. And maybe they're a little different. And then people come here and go, oh, you guys are a little different. I'm okay with that. It's okay to be a little different but we gotta have unity. Brothers and sisters, we have to have unity. Number two is we have to have a knowledge of the Son of God. There's a biblical aspect to this. There's a knowledge aspect to this. Knowledge is not the most important thing, but as Proverbs tell us, knowledge of God is the beginning of wisdom. There's a sense of understanding the, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, is the exact way it's said in Proverbs but we need to have the knowledge of the Son of God. That's why we're here. That's why we do teaching. That's why we do trainings. That's why we ask you to do Bible studies and home studies and pray and understand because we want unity. We want knowledge of the Son of God to a maturity, that there's a maturity in manhood and womanhood that's so important. We can mature. And last week I said this, and I had several of you, probably the biggest comment of the sermon, when I said that I'm not the most spiritual person in this room. I happen to lead you, but I am not confusing the fact that I'm leading you that I am the most, that I'm in the front of the pack. You see, we can mature people, we can learn from people throughout the pack. I'm towards the front, I do agree, but all of us can learn from one another. Didn't Jesus say, bring the children to us because we can learn from them? That's the spiritual children as well. Don't think there's this hierarchy that if you've been a Christian for 20 years that you're better than the Christian of three years because you may only be one year old 20 years times, 20 times. And the three-year-old may be three years older than you or two years older than you. So please understand that there's a maturity that comes. Why? Because he wants us to be Christ-like. It says, to have that Christ-likeness. Or it says, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I couldn't get that in the slide, so I put Christ-likeness. We are trying to achieve to be like Christ. Who, there's unity, there's maturity, etc. So that, verse 14, the negative, so that we don't act as children tossed about by the waves and the wind. We in South Florida get this, don't you? You and I get the waves and the wind. You could be tossed so far back and forth. He's saying we don't want you to be tossed by the waves or the wind or by human cunning, craftiness, or deceitful schemes. 
Probably one of the, the saddest things I see on a regular basis is people that get sucked into the wrong thing. And they'll go, did you hear about this? And I'll go, no, but what about it? And they'll say things, I go, well, that's not even biblical. That's not even, well, yeah, but he or she is loud and they're good and they're strong and they talk well. And, and I go, that's not the thing to follow. There are crafty things that should not be followed. And I think we're seeing more. Do you ever see that? Do you see that around? It's unbelievable. Rather, verse 15, and again, it's a new, new sentence here, but it says, rather speaking the truth in love. Here it comes, and we'll get to this uh, later on in the book, the whole concept and the importance of truth. Truth-telling, it is a cornerstone of what we believe. Back in the Cold War, and when a lot of non-truths were being said, there still are, but a lot of them, a guy named Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was a great Russian author and just a great Christian man, he passed away a few years ago, but he talked about, he came out of the gulags in the Soviet Union and out of all that bad stuff and that bad propaganda. And he said, one word of truth shall last more than them. Or if Martin Luther would say, one word would outlast Satan, and that word is Jesus Christ. And a mighty fortress is our God, it's Lord Sabaoth is his name. You see, truth lives. The lies live for a short period of time. And when the lie and the truth are side by side, you may think they're both equal. Please understand they are not. The truth shall prevail. It may take some time, it may be a while, but the truth shall prevail. So when you speak, speak truth, but do it in love. I see a lot of people speaking truth and not in love, and that goes to the whole gentleness thing we talked about recently, that we are to be gentle in our truth. So speak the truth, so it's not just speak love, you gotta speak truth and love, and truth in love, but you gotta do both, and you gotta do it, and that's a, a good definition of gentleness. And then he goes on, we grow in every way. It says here, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. So back to that whole thing of growing and becoming Christ-like. Then in verse 16, or the last word of verse 15, into Christ from whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The big issue here is Jesus Christ. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? I've shared this story many times, and it fits right here. I was asked to speak at a... Um, at a um, congregation who are not believers in another faith. And um, I said I would because they wanted me to speak about immigration and about um, issues, all the stuff we do with world lead and human trafficking. And they knew, they said, would you come speak to our faith community about it? I said, absolutely, I'll come. 
I said, let's get together the week before so I can know what, and it was going to be a couple hundred people in their place of worship. And we came, and they came over, and uh, they were in my office, and everything went well, and we were talking about all the issues around the world, especially in the Middle East, and talking about this, I was ready. And as we were leaving, he, as we were standing and leaving, he got up and he said, you know, you can say anything you want to say except the words, Jesus Christ. You can talk about God, love, Christianity. Just do not use the word Jesus or Christ in my place of worship. You see, Jesus Christ makes the difference. And they even know it because they don't want it. So I've told you this, but I'm going to tell you again. I was, you know, here I'm a pastor of Jesus Christ who am going to speak and can't use the words Jesus Christ. So do I lose a friend or do I lose Almighty God? Not lose him, but make him mad or whatever. And uh, so I'm confused and praying, and the morning of the event we get there, and I still didn't know what I was going to do. And they had two little girls open up the, the meeting. One was a girl of that faith. Another girl was an immigrant girl. The immigrant girl, they both, one did a reading, the other one did a prayer. The immigrant girl did a prayer. She couldn't have been 10 years old. Well, it turns out she came from a Pentecostal church. That's why I don't speak against Pentecostals, because I, I learned a great lesson from a Pentecostal 10-year-old. I pray in Jesus' name at the end of the prayer. Good Pentecostals pray in Jesus' name at the beginning of the prayer, right? They go, in Jesus' name, and then they'll say a few things, and then they'll go, in Jesus' name. Now, this 10-year-old was just really quiet and demure and cute and all the rest, and, but she started the cadence of her pastor, and she yells out, in Jesus' name, in front of these hundreds of people where Jesus' name was not allowed to be spoken. But what are they going to do to a 10-year-old? And then she prayed, and then she said Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, six times or more. I counted six. I was crying so bad in the back, saying, thank you, God. It took a 10-year-old to get my act together. I stood up there, and I told them the story of the Good Samaritan, about Jesus. And the Good Samaritan, I said, you are our neighbors, and I need to be a good neighbor because of Jesus. And at the end of this thing, He's running up to me, the leader, the head of this. He's running up to me. I go, okay, now I got to deal with this. And he put his arms around me and thanked me. He thanked me. You see, you tell the truth in love. You speak the truth in love. He knew I didn't agree with him on his faith and, and on his, he knew all that. But I told him of our faith, but I did it in love. Not with the finger pointed out, but the finger pointed up. He and I are now good friends. And have conversations, not every day or anything, but constantly. You know, I go around and pray for our city and pray for all that. I go by his place of worship and pray. I did this morning. I was, by, I was praying for him this morning at 6.30. Every Sunday morning, I pray for him. Why? Because he needs Jesus. As does his people in his congregation, as does your children, your family, the people down the street, the next door neighbor.
We need to speak the truth in love. God has rescued us and given us the gift of you in this church so that we can gift out to others the truth of who Jesus Christ is. Amen. Now, let's close this. I have a friend who uh, I was with last week, and I said, how is your summer going? He said, it's like Sisyphus. Sisyphus, who on earth is that? Well, in Greek mythology, for those of you who like Greek mythology, Zeus cursed Sisyphus with having to roll up a big ball, a big ball, up a hill and get it to the top of the hill. It was hard labor. Look it up, you'll see paintings of someone trying to push a big ball up the hill. But what Zeus did in this mythology was he made it that right when Sisyphus got to the top of the hill, it would roll back down. And the curse of Sisyphus is that you're always rolling the ball uphill, and it never gets to the flat part of the top. Some of us feel our lives are like Sisyphus that everything we do is rolling up a ball uphill. And as soon as we get almost there, we have worked and worked and worked and worked. And what happens? Something else happens. And we work and work and work and work and something else happens. And we work and work. Have you ever had this happen? Yes, I, I, I see your faces. You don't have to raise your hand. I see your faces. Let me tell you. Let Jesus move your burdens up the hill. God says he's going to help us through the burdens, not around the burdens. People go, get this burden out of my life. Maybe a better prayer is, God, would you take this burden and help me through it? This is what we need to do. And when people see you working through the issues of your life, it is going to scream the love of Christ to them. It will scream to them louder than if you were to preach on the street corner when they see that Christ is working in your life. And the end of that scripture says, and do it in love. Let's pray together.